This is BT Techno, a regular podcast series for financial advisors wanting to remain at the forefront of strategy, regulatory and industry news. Hello, I'm Brian Ashenden and I have the pleasure of leading the BT Technical Services team, a group of qualified individuals who are able to answer any technical advice strategy queries you may have for your clients. Now, in one of our recent podcasts, we briefly discussed a number of superannuation changes that will take effect from the 1st of July 2022 as a result of the passage of the Treasury Laws Amendment Enhancing Superannuation Outcomes for Australians and Helping Australian Businesses Invest Act of 2022. One of those changes was the lowering of the qualification age to be able to boost super balances with a downsizer contribution. Now, whilst interest in the downsizer strategy has always been high, this change has given new life and interest to this opportunity. So, to discuss how the downsizer contribution works, who is eligible, and all other relevant criteria, this week I'm handing the mic over to Matt Manning, one of BT's technical consultants. Matt, over to you. Thanks, Brian. Via the tech hotline and inbox, we've recently noticed an increase in advisor inquiries relating to downsizer contributions. Subject to the eligibility criteria, a downsizer contribution allows clients to use proceeds of a property sale to contribute up to $300,000 to their super. Downsizer contributions are similar to non-concessional contributions in the sense there's no tax upon entry to the fund and the contribution forms part of the tax-free component. However, downsizer contributions do not count towards a non-concessional cap, the total super balance eligibility criterion does not apply and there's no work test requirement. On our list are seven eligibility criteria, all of which need to be satisfied for a client to qualify, and for most of these cover the most relevant frequently asked questions we've been receiving. Criterion number one, the client making the downsizer contribution must have attained age 65. This criterion will change from 1 July 2022, as the minimum age will reduce to age 60 but for downsizer contributions occurring during the remainder of the 21-22 financial year, this will remain age 65. The most common question we get in relation to this criterion is, for those who are 64 but close to age 65, what if the client is age 64 at the time of the settlement or time of the contract, however makes a downsizer contribution after they've attained age 65? And the answer is that they still satisfy this criterion as the age restriction is assessed at the time of the contribution. Although, as I'll expand on later, the client has to make the contribution within 90 days of receiving the proceeds. As an example to illustrate this age restriction and the 1 July 22 changes, if a client receives proceeds from the sale of their home on the 1st of June 2022, satisfies the other criteria, however, is age 63, they will not be able to make downsizer contributions between the 1st of June and the 30th of June 22, as they're under age 65. However, they will be able to make a downsizer contribution on the 1st of July 22, as the age restriction will have reduced to age 60, and they're still within the 90-day time frame. Criterion 2. The home was sold by the client or their spouse for 10 years or more prior to the sale. So this is the ownership time frame criterion and this 10 year ownership period is calculated from the settlement of the purchase to the settlement of the sale. The three most common questions for this criterion are number one, 
For a couple, can, say, the wife satisfy this criterion if the property is solely in her husband's name? And the answer is yes. As an example for 2122, if the husband and wife are both over age 65 at the time of the downsizer contribution, they could each contribute up to $300,000 of the proceeds, even though the property was owned solely in the husband's name. Number two, what if a couple divorces? Does the former spouse's ownership period count towards the 10-year time frame? And the answer is yes. The 10-year time frame continues to accrue despite the relationship breakdown. As an example, if the wife solely owned the property for eight years and either via court order or as part of a formal legal agreement, the property was transferred to her former husband. If the husband then sells the property three years later, the combined ownership period of 11 years satisfies this criterion. Number three, what happens in the event of death? Can the beneficiary of the property use the deceased owner's ownership period towards the 10-year period? And the answer where the deceased and the beneficiary are spouses is yes. As was the case for the prior example involving relationship breakdown, the ownership period of both the deceased spouse and the beneficiary spouse is combined when assessing the 10-year period. However, if the beneficiary is not a spouse of the deceased, such as an adult child, the 10-year period restarts upon the death of the original owner. Criterion 3. The home being sold is in Australia and is not a caravan, houseboat or mobile home. I think this one's self-explanatory. Foreign properties do not qualify and neither do caravans, houseboats or mobile homes. Criterion number four. The proceeds from the sale of the home are either fully or partially exempt from capital gains tax under the main residence exemption. So the key for this criterion is that only a partial main residence exemption is required. Naturally, if, you, if a property has always been an investment property, it will not satisfy this criterion, but as an example, a property which has been owned for a total of 15 years would still satisfy this criterion if the main residence exemption applied for just three of these years. The three most common questions for this criterion are, number one, is this criterion satisfied if the property was purchased pre-CGT? And the answer is yes. This criterion is satisfied so long as the property has at some stage been their main residence. The fact that the sale is already exempt from CGT due to the pre-85 status does not matter. However, please note that this is the only exception to the requirement for the gain to be fully or partially exempt due to the main residence exemption. Number two, is this criterion satisfied if the property is more than, ten, more than two hectares, such as a farm? And the answer is yes. Even though the main residence CGT exemption only applies to the property and the surrounding two hectares, it does not matter if the property is more than two hectares. Also in such scenarios, we don't even have to apportion the amount of the sale proceeds. So say a single client satisfies all the criteria and receives proceeds of $400,000 from the sale of a 10 hectare property, where the value of the dwelling in the surrounding two hectares is 250000 they could still make a downsizer contribution of up to 300000 even though the main residence CGT exemption can only apply to the portion of the property that's worth 250000 Number three, is this criterion satisfied if one member of a couple have disposed of the property to their spouse due to relationship breakdown? And the answer is no, because when this occurs, the CGT implications are deferred rather than being exempt due to the main residence exemption.
As an example, if the husband has solely owned the property for 12 years and transfers ownership to his former wife as part of a formal agreement upon relationship breakdown, he does not qualify for the main resident CGT exemption and therefore that doesn't apply to this situation for the downsizer. However, as I mentioned previously, the wife could sell the property and subject to the other criteria qualify as she can use her former husband's ownership period to satisfy the 10-year ownership requirement. Criterion 5. The client provides a super fund receiving the downsizer contribution with the downsizer contribution into super form either before or at the time of the downsizer contribution. This is an administrative criterion but still important. The relevant form to advise the super fund receiving the contribution that it should be reported as a downsizer contribution is NAT 75073. The implications of not submitting this form in time is that the contribution will be assessed as a non-concessional contribution and for some who have previously made non-concessional contributions or have a high total super balance, this may result in exceeding the non-concessional cap or for some the intended downsizer contribution that's assessed as a non-concessional contribution will be within their cap but this may result in an opportunity cost if they decide to also make non-concessional contributions in the future. Criterion 6. The client must make the downsizer contribution within 90 days of receiving the proceeds of sale. So this is the time frame requirement for the contribution and generally the date that the 90 day clock starts ticking is a date of settlement. The ATO does have some discretion to extend this 90 day period but as they assess on a case by case basis and upon application I can't be definitive as to when they would or would not use. Based on the examples in the explanatory memorandum to the relevant bill, the ATO are most likely to apply their discretion where there's special circumstances beyond the client's control, such as before making the downsizer contribution, they wish to use some of the proceeds to purchase another home, but the settlement for the other home is delayed. It's very unlikely that the ATO will use their discretion where the client forgot to make the contribution or where they did not realise this opportunity existed until the 90-day period expired, or where doing so would allow the client to satisfy the age requirement. Criterion 7. The client has not previously made a downsizer contribution to super from the sale of another or part sale of the former home. So whilst I suggest the vast majority who wanted to make a downsizer contribution would do so at first opportunity, the principle of this criterion is use it or lose it, rather than use it and lose it. As a couple of examples, say if a client sold property one, which satisfied all the downsizer criteria, but did not make a downsizer contribution in respect to this sale, they can still make a downsizer contribution in future if they sell another property, say property number two, which satisfies the eligibility criteria. However, if they made a $200,000 downsizer contribution after selling property number one, they cannot make a $100,000 downsizer contribution after selling property number two. So basically once a client has made a downsizer contribution, even if they've not used the full $300,000, they cannot make a downsizer contribution if they sell another property in the future. Now clients can make multiple downsizer contributions in relation to the same property sale, but I suggest avoiding as this requires multiple downsizer forms to be submitted and complicates the situation compared to just contributing the desired amount as a singular contribution. So these were the seven eligibility criteria. If a client satisfies all the eligibility criteria, they can contribute up to the lesser of $300,000 and the amount of the sale proceeds.
For couples who are both eligible to make a downsizer contribution, the $300,000 limit is per individual, but the total downsizer contributions between the members of the couple is still limited to the lesser of $600,000 and the amount of the sale proceeds. As an example, if all the eligibility criteria are satisfied, the sale proceeds are $500,000 and both husband and wife are eligible. Their downsizer contributions could be $250,000 each or $300,000 for the husband and $200,000 for the wife, or $300,000 for wife and $200,000 for the husband, or any combination which does not exceed either $300,000 per person or $500,000 in total. Thank you. Well, thanks, Matt. It's important to ensure you are across all the relevant criteria for a client to meet the downsizer contribution rules, if that's what they are seeking to do. Getting it wrong could result in an excess non-concessional contribution issue but getting it right can make a big difference to the retirement plans of your clients. Now remember, if you have any technical questions, you can contact the BT Technical Services team on 1800 655 901 or by email to technical at And you can join us for our fortnightly BT Academy webinars where we discuss all things technical and regulatory in the advice space. Now, our next fortnightly session is scheduled for Wednesday, the 16th of March, 2022, when Matt Manning will present the next session in his Life Stage series, What to Financially Expect When You Are Expecting. Now, this Life Stage strategy-based session outlines the financial advice opportunities that arise as a result of a client having a baby, including financial support from the government, the financial aspects of child care and family assistance payments, and estate planning, insurance, and superannuation impacts. To register for this session, head to www.bt.com.au forward slash professional and follow the links to the BT Academy webinar series. There, you can also view our previous webinars on demand and all our sessions are accredited for CPD purposes. And remember that our following webinar on the 30th of March will be dedicated to analysing the 2022-23 federal budget. We will host webinars at 9am and midday Australian Eastern Standard Time on the 30th of March, both covering the same content, so you can choose which session you wish to watch. Look out for registration options for those webinars, which will be coming soon. Until next time, bye for now. BT Tech knows, and now you know. Join us next time to keep ahead of the curve for strategy, regulatory and industry news. This podcast has been developed for financial advisor use only and provides general information only. It does not take into account any particular individual's objectives, financial situations or needs.